The Jewish Views live on Turning Our Backs on Religion. Just why is the margin between the ultra-Orthodox and secular getting wider? Anti-Semitism. Is the community doing enough to tackle what feels like an ever-growing problem? And President Donald Trump, who might be pro-Israel, but does that mean that he's a help or a hindrance to the Jewish state? there and welcome to a very special edition of the Jewish Views Live. We are in the presence of a studio audience at Edgware and District Reform Synagogue and over the course of the next hour we'll be looking at some of the big topics that are troubling the community today. As I say we are in front of an audience and to answer some of the questions tonight is our panel and they are as follows. From the Jewish News we welcome a familiar voice to this show, editor Richard Ferrer. The founder of Mitzvah Day is Laura Marks. Broadcaster and author Russ Kane. And founder of Joffa, that of course is the Jewish Orthodox Feminine Alliance. We welcome Dina Bra. I'm Phil Dave, and let's get straight on with it as we look at our first subject. Subject tonight is religion. The question is, why are so many Jews turning their back on religion? And how do we encourage people to keep the traditions of our ancestors alive, no matter what? Dina, I think that it is important to start with you, because I think it's fair comment to say that you are possibly the most religious member of the panel this evening. So why is it that you feel that perhaps the gap between secular and orthodox is widening? So before I answer your question, I think I want to just comment on your comment that I might be the most religious person on the panel. I think we often fall in the trap of judging people very much by the externals and defining religion by what can be seen on the outside. So something I always like to point out is that you might be able to see or tell how observant of ritual one person is, but religion is much more than just the rituals you can observe on the outside. So having made this disclaimer, so the question is a really good question, and I just wonder, really, do we know whether people are turning away from institutions, are they turning away from traditional practice or spirituality? And depending on what they're turning away from, I guess the answer would be different. I think that in general, millennials are cast as very selfish and not connected to the tradition that their parents followed, but in truth, what is emerging is that millennials are really interested in making a difference to their community and the world. They are interested in meaning. They're just finding very different paths and ways to that meaning. And so what I think might be true is that they're no longer associated with the institutions that their parents associated with, and perhaps they're not paying shul membership dues. But we shouldn't fall into the trap of confusing religion and spirituality with shul membership. So I think these are two very separate things. The other part of this is that we tend to often guilt young people into committing to the institutions and to the traditions of the past. The American author and rabbi Jay Michelson differentiates between forcing people to commit, pushing them to commit, and inviting them to find a creative religious experience to find meaning. And 
he actually attributes the success of the outreach movement, the Chabad outreach movement, to the latter, to the fact that they invite you to find opportunities of meaning and don't guilt you into sort of like commit to a whole package. So those are things that we need to think about. As religious and spiritual leaders, my husband and I have really spent a lot of time thinking about this and how you invite participation in religious practice and religious life in, in spiritual in finding spiritual meaning from different people, from different affiliations, from different backgrounds, educationally, at different levels of observance, everybody can find something that is of meaning if it's presented in a contemporary and resonant way. And that is part of the reason why we have recently co-launched a new community called Mishkan, the community beyond border, which is really not focused on a physical building, but really on values and meaning and trying to bring people around together around the, the values and the experiences. So that's something that I really think it's important. It's important for communities and institutions not to focus so much on gimmicks, on sort of like what food can you serve at the Kiddush in order to attract people, but really to think about what is the people want to feel and experience and, and get away with. Okay, so Russ Kane, let's look at that. What do people want to feel and experience when it comes to religion? Would you describe yourself perhaps more as a secular Jew? Is that a fair comment? I've never understood what that means. Ever. I don't even know what secular means, frankly. It's, it, it always baffles me. You know, I'm Jewish. I, I'm proud to be Jewish. Am I religious? Absolutely not. I find no, no sucker in it, no, nothing about it. I love, when I used to go to shul, when I lived in North London, I'd go on a Friday because it was my me time, because I enjoyed being me. I was at the Finchley Progressive, and it was fantastic. I thought it was marvelous, and I enjoyed that time. Do I get anything out of the prayers? Nothing whatsoever. Do I enjoy Jewish life? Yes, I do. I just don't find a, a place for it at all. And Laura Marks, why is it that being Jewish doesn't have to necessarily mean that one is religious, would you say? I'm very pleased you came back to that point because uh, you started off saying that Dina is the most religious member of the panel. I struggle with that a bit, actually, because, funnily enough, one of the first times Dina and I met was because Dina had written an article in the Jewish Chronicle. It was to do with her relationship with, with children, actually. And it was all about relationships of families and, and how families function together in a Jewish world. And I read it, and I thought, this is so interesting because the values and the feelings and the essence of what Dina's saying is exactly where I am. And yet, people might put us at very different ends of the sort of religiosity spectrum. So I'm not really very interested in the religiousness of it. I'm much more interested in the way that people approach their Jewish lives and what they get out of it. And I think that it is interesting that a lot of people don't want to be part of shul life anymore. People are fed up with it. People want a different way of doing things. I think a lot of people these days want to come to their religion through social action or through doing something for the world, which is a way that a lot of people express their Judaism. But interesting, not just their Judaism, we see exactly the same in the Muslim world, in the Christian world, in the Sikh Hindu world. People who maybe haven't or uh, don't feel comfortable with the traditional way their parents did things, but nonetheless want to be part of community, but also want to do something where they give back, which they see as the essence of their Judaism. So if it's across the board, Richard Farrow, that might suggest that there has to be something in everyday life that potentially is, as it were, turning people away from religion or not encouraging them to be as religious as maybe some of our ancestors were. Would you say that 21st century life is almost to blame for this? 
Well, I think Dina touched on it in her opening remarks when she said millennials, for want of a better term. I think I was a Generation X and the Generation Y is now, I, I can't keep up. But I think in your teens and your 20s, you're trying to self-identify, trying to figure out where you're going in life, what your career is going to be like, who you're going to get married to, what, where you're You're unaffiliated. I think it isn't until you're in your later years, for, for want of a better term, that you do identify more with your culture and your roots and your spirituality, call it what you want. So it's a little unfair to pick on the, the millennials, I think. But demographically, I think the question is wrong. I don't think more people becoming less religious. I mean, if you look at the, the, the census survey, if you look around 2030, it's the point, I think, that half of all Jews born in the UK are going to be Haredi. I mean, not even United Synagogue right-wing Orthodox. They're actually going to be strictly Orthodox. There was a very interesting story. There's lots of interesting stories in the Jewish news, but there was one last week particularly about a survey called Israel Dateline 2059 that gave you a sense of what Israel's going to look like in that date in you know, many years to come. And there, a third of the entire Jewish population is going to be Haredi. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the future. And me as a Jewish newspaper editor, I, I, can't, I can't talk to that community. That community is not interested in secular, progressive, liberal ideas that I hold true to as a Jew. So speaking to this booming area of the Jewish community in the future is going to be a big challenge, I think, for, for progressive Jews like me. It was something that Russ mentioned earlier on when he said that he's never understood the term secular. Just out of interest, what is our understanding on the panel what the term secular Jew actually does mean? Richard, let's start with you on that one because you've just used it as well. What is a secular Jew? I think he's, he or she is someone who intellectually cherry-picks what they want and what they don't want and what they recognise and don't recognise and what's historically and culturally important to them and they don't swallow everything because that's how it was swallowed the generation before them and the generation before them and i know that's a very 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 dodgy path to go down because if you start watering down anything at the end you just get water so there is i think the essence of the issue of what is a jew today and, and what is a progressive jew in 50 years time but no for me it's a self-selecting person someone who can kind of be influenced by the culture around him while also being kind of intrinsically self-identifying as jewish so does that mean, and then I'm just asking this question, I'll ask it to Dina just out of interest, that speaking as someone who is a Reformed Jew myself, does that mean that as a Reformed Jew, I am probably less likely to be classed as a religious Jew, even though I do come to shul, as some of our rabbinic team is here this evening and should be able to clarify that, I do come to shul most weeks. Does that mean that I'm any less religious than someone who's maybe a member of the United Synagogue or even more Orthodox? Okay, so first of all, I, I want to sort of come back on the word secular and also on, on shul. So let's start actually with shul. I think we tend to confuse religion with shul. Shul is a very small aspect of religion. Growing up in a small community in Milan, Italy, my very intense and full Jewish life was very much based at home and my Jewish school. And shul was just one small part of a very the 613 commandments. Most of them are not applicable, but prayer can be done at home. There's a lot of sanctity to coming together as a community, and we don't want to minimize that. But the majority of festivals can be practiced in the home. You don't really need to come to shul for everything, right? There's a lot more ritual and Jewish experiences that you can do at home or you can do in outside spaces. So we tend to sort of like use shul too much as a sort of like the, 
barometers of how Jewishly affiliated we are or how observant we are. I really don't like using the word religious so much. Going back to the word secular, I think the word secular is a translation of the word chiloni in modern Hebrew. And I'd like to kind of quote the Lubavitcher Rebbe here for a moment because the word chiloni comes from the word chol. Chol means secular or profane, and it's very much differentiation that we use in, at the end of Shabbat. And we, when we recite Havdalah, we say Hamavdil ben Kodesh lechol, right? The difference between the holy and the sort of like profaned every day, what's sanctified and what's not sanctified. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe once used heard somebody use this word chiloniya to refer to non-observant Israelis, and he said, you know, I don't like that word, that there's no such a thing as a Jew who's completely, you know, without any aspect of holiness. So there isn't such a thing as a secular Jew. I think we all pick and choose to different extent. Even the person who looks completely observant probably still needs to work on something that you cannot see. So. I think religion pervades every aspect of our life. We can find a religious expression. And the work of Mitzvah Day, of trying to sort of make the world a better place, is religious work. We may not think of it that way because somehow it's not attached to shul, but actually that is taking religious Jewish values and imbuing them in the everyday. And so there are so many different ways that everybody expresses their religion. And it doesn't have to be always the thing that you can tell from the outside because somebody's wearing a black coat, has a long beard, or, you know, is officially Shomer Shabbat or, or whatever other definitions that we have. So many different ways to express it. Russ Cain, how do you express personally your Judaism? I don't. You know, when I did my stand-up show, and I'm, t- I'm taking the same show to LA in September, a lot of it is Jewish humor. And that's a way of life and a shorthand of describing a lot of our strange little foibles, but it's not religious. I don't, I don't need to dis, dis, describe it. I don't think it needs to be described. It just, it just is. It's less described, more display, I think, was the original term. So is there any way that you do demonstrate it, would you say, in everyday life? I mean, even if it is something as simple as, say, having a penchant for salmon bagels, it really can be as simple as that. <laughs> I don't, it's very, it's very, very hard to say. I mean, I just feel poles apart from, from you. I mean, just, just poles apart. When I listen to you speak, and I know you're obviously highly intelligent, you're incredibly articulate, and it reminds me of being at school where people, you know, I would sit listening about Milton and stuff like that when they're arguing about how many, you know, angels can and fairies can dance on the head of a pin. Who cares? It's, it, just, it just seems an irrelevancy to me. And, and I suppose, really, my problem tonight, Phil, is that I cannot untangle myself as much as I've been trying all day since I woke up at 6 a.m. I can't detangle myself to what happened last night in Manchester because the things that are done in the name of, of religion are just uh, appalling just absolutely terrible. So I, it just seems like we're kind of standing on a, on a sideline and debating these very fine, erudite, intellectual points, and the, the world's going to hell in a handcart. And that's what I think, I think that's what frustrates me. The problem is, of course, though, that I should actually point out to anyone listening to the recording of this, that this was, of course, recorded on the Tuesday after, Tuesday the 23rd of May, which, of course, was the day after the bombings in Manchester. 
in which 22 people lost their lives, or at least 22 people lost their lives at the time of recording. So that's obviously the incident that you refer to for our listeners who are not watching this live. But the problem is, though, that you say that what's been done in the name of religion, isn't it fair to say, Laura Marks, that that is in the name of a few people's religion, and therefore we shouldn't tarnish religion as a whole, whether it's Judaism, Islam, Christianity, whatever it is, that should not be enough of an excuse to say, well, actually, look, they're doing this in the name of religion, therefore I want nothing to do with it. Well, I mean, I feel very strongly that what Islamist attacks are all about is not really about Islam. And I believe, I have to believe, it's, I deep down believe that most people are good. You know, I, I couldn't get up in the morning and do what I do and lead my life if I didn't believe fundamentally most people are good. And there are some people who are evil for various reasons, and some people use religion particularly to do their evil. People use other things to do evil too. People use communism to do evil. People, there are other there are other philosophies around the world which people use to do evil. It's not just Islam. And, and it's not just certain, it's not just religion, or it's not just any particular religion. So people who are looking for evil will find evil. And I think that the way I see religion and the way I like to see religion is that it's an opportunity to do good and to have good. So my Judaism is a combination of enjoying the bits of Judaism which I like, and doing lots of good as well, which I happen to also like. But, and so the two work very well together for me. And I don't get that hung up about whether this is religion, whether I'm religious, whether I believe in anything. I spent some time living in California, actually, where my attitude to my Judaism changed radically. And one of the things that I struggled with until that point was, am I a secular Jew? Am I a real Jew? Am I a religious Jew? I don't understand the religion bit. I don't get all this stuff. And I used to worry a lot about that. Growing up, it sounds like I worried about it a lot. I didn't worry about it a lot. But you know, as an adult, I worried about this. And I thought, how am I a good Jew if I don't really get it and I don't really get the religion part of it? And it was during my time there that uh, where actually I did an adult but mitzvah but it was during my time there that the student rabbi said to me, Laura, stop worrying about this. Just get on and do the things you do because they're Jewish. And so that's what I did. And it made a huge difference to me just to realize that I lead what I believe to be a Jewish life. Other people may say that it's not. I don't really care what other people say about it. If I believe I'm leading a Jewish life and I'm contributing society by being Jewish, that's enough for me. Let's see whether or not the audience wants to answer that question as well, shall we? And your name, please. I'm Rabbi Emily German. I have to say, I would really like this conversation better if we focused a little bit less on generational disengagement. I have a lot of problems with generational disengagement, which, Dina, I think you touched on beautifully, that there are all these different levels of engagement that a person can you know, come into contact with their faith in. I think one of the issues is that when we're talking about millennials, and of course, I'm completely biased, I will say that right off the top, this is my area, this is what I work in, this is what I do. We don't recognize necessarily the reality that millennials are living in, where a standard five-day work week no longer exists, nine to five no longer exists, graduates don't get full-time jobs when they leave university. 
They often go back home where home ownership is just a dream unless someone has a lot of money to give them. And when that is your reality, how can you possibly conceive of paying for synagogue membership? I mean, it's a crazy expense to most of these people. It doesn't mean that they don't want to be involved. It means that the barriers and the fences are so high that they're too afraid to come even close to them. They're too afraid to even enter into the conversations to try and talk to us to see what we can do for them. I would say that proof of that comes from, if you take a look at Leo Beck College, they have right now the most incredible, passionate, wonderful, talented, young rabbinic students. Millennials who are committed wholly to their faith and want to make it their life. And this is a trend we haven't seen before. I mean, I think I was at sort of the mid-level of this trend that we've seen over the past 10 years or so of younger and younger students going to LBC. And it's wonderful. It gives me so much faith in the progression of Judaism and in our future leadership. But I think the question that's more interesting to me is what are the barriers to synagogue membership, to Jewish involvement, and how can we best address those before we even start asking questions on a generational level? Okay, so let's put that to our panelists before we move on to the next topic. The barriers that are in the way, Dina Brau, what are they and how do we combat them? Well, I'm not sure what the barriers are. I think um, Rabbi Emily mentioned a financial barrier for some young people. There might be other accessibility barriers as well, but I think every community needs to look at their wider community and see who is out there who's not participating and you know try to study why they're not participating. So there might be some gender barriers, there might be a barriers in terms of like accessibility. There are lots of different type of barriers. Richard Farah. Well, I mean, I think we're very, very lucky as a community. Our youth and teen engagement programs are just phenomenal. I mean, I'm 40-something years old, and back in the 1980s when I was a member of FZY, it was a, a very enriching experience And as a secular Jewish person who, much like Russ, has absolutely no sort of self-identity in terms of the re religiosity of Judaism. That's really stayed with me, profoundly so. And the, the, the Jewish News does 18 under 18 and 13 under 30, identifying the next generation of of Jewish leaders and we did it in the last few weeks and that is just a cornucopia of people from the left and the right and the center more women than men who in fact Laura wrote about it in the paper a couple of weeks ago and it just shows th those sort of roots they really bind and, and you retain those roots and that identity so I, I think in terms of instilling Judaism whatever that means well, I think we do it really well as a community Laura Marks well there's two things about the, the barriers because there are barriers that are put up that sort of stop people coming in. I mean, the one about money, maybe if you're a young family and you've got huge other expenses, yeah, maybe shul membership is something that's way down on your, your priorities. But when I look at the amount of money that young people spend on themselves, I don't necessarily think this is about money. I think this is about wanting to do it. And I think that the issue is not that they can't find the I don't know how many hundred pounds it is for a young person to join a shul. I think it's that they can't see the benefit in joining. It's a cost-benefit thing. So the question we have to ask ourselves as community machers, if you like, is what are we offering people that they would want to join our shul or want to be part of our community? What's in it for them? 
And maybe there isn't enough in it for them at the moment. Maybe at the moment there are too many downsides and not enough upsides. And we really need to think about how we get that how we get that balance better, how we as a community make being part of us more attractive to people. Ross Kane. Rabbi Emily, you are, in, in a few words, put your f- finger right on the, on the pulse of this because it's quite clear that what you do makes religion or Judaism relevant and makes it relevant to living where we do where we're at, which is not a great place, in 2017. And it is only by making these things relevant, which is why I like Finchley Progressive, because Rabbi Rebecca was just terrific, and I insisted that my twins got, they're not religious, but I wanted them for their. She makes it relevant to the life that we have, because otherwise it's just, it's just words and you read those words and you think, this makes absolutely no sense. What on earth am I getting from this? And the answer is nothing. And it's only by translating it into how, it, how we can apply it to life now that people will find it attractive and it, and it will embrace them. All right, well, there you go. That's where we have to leave it for that discussion. Thank you all very much indeed. You are listening to The Jewish Views, and this episode is brought to you in association with the All Things Jewish Committee of EDRS. We are in front of a live audience, and still to come, we'll be discussing the subject of President Donald Trump and just what we think he means for Israel. But first, from the subject of religion, we move on to anti-Semitism. It feels like this is a subject that frankly just won't go away, so let's find out what our panelists make of the following question. What should we as a community be doing to tackle anti-Semitism and how do we go about it? Now Richard Ferrer, we'll start with you because I think that the, the observation that most of us would make is that there doesn't seem to sadly be a week that goes by where the Jewish news doesn't have to feature in one way or another a subject, a story pertaining to anti-Semitism of some description or another. Where are we going wrong? I don't think we are going wrong. I mean, you're quite right to allude to the fact that if it wasn't for anti-Semitism, I'd really struggle to fill the newspaper, I think, <laughs> every week. So thanks to the bigots and the racists, at least for that. <laughs> Look, I, th- I, th- I think anti-Semitism is certainly a lot more different than it was 10, 20 years ago and my parents' generation. You know, back then it was, we knew what we were dealing with. It was the, the swastikas and the Zig Heilers and the jackbooters and the, and the Nazi scum. Now it's, as, as we are only too well aware and we're st- it's still very much in our thoughts, radical Islam, Islamism and, and now the threat faced from, what should we call it, the hard left. The triple threat, should we say. So I think anti-Semitism is certainly three times the power it was, and it's certainly more insidious. If you see a swastika, you know what you're dealing with. The other two are slightly more uh, camouflaged, shall we say. I don't think we should be doing any more than we are doing. I mean, sadly, our schools are behind high wire and CCTV cameras, and our kids go to school. I'm sure this synagogue has got that that very nice man with the yellow bib outside who made sure that I wasn't a danger to all you people here this evening. I know, you still got in. That's very reassuring. Sadly, that's the reality of living life as a Jew here in Britain in, in 2017. But I have to maintain it's not as dangerous, it's not as scary as it is being a Muslim in Britain in 2017. And while we're all very, very angry and upset 
by what has happened here in in Britain, in, in, in Manchester, in, in the last few hours, that backlash will hit the, the Muslim community directly. And I know we're all very, very angry, and I was too in the, in the hours that followed, and you want to lash out. But we are very lucky. Our government has got our backs. They, they put 13 million more pounds into safeguarding our community, funding our magnificent community security trust, who are also helping the Muslim community through Tel Mama, which is their own version of the CST. So we are leading the way when it comes to protecting minorities in this community, and, and the Jewish community, I think, is at the forefront of that. The CST do a marvelous job, but I, I honestly do believe that in terms of minorities, we're one of the lucky ones. It's interesting in terms of the mention of the Muslim community, especially when it comes to the question which was, how do we go about tackling anti-Semitism? And yet, with the first comment, the Muslim community has come up. Laura, it seems obvious to come to you next because an awful lot of the work that you do is actually bringing the two communities together mm -hmm. rather than sort of implying that either one is responsible for hatred on either side. Yes, yeah, so, so first of all, a bit of context here. Since Brexit, immediately after Brexit, hate crime in the UK went up 19%. And hate crime, and that's a home office figure, hate crime includes anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim hate crime, homophobic attacks, you know, all sorts of things fall into the category of hate crime. And it shot up and has stayed pretty high, and it clearly is an ongoing problem. So we're not, as you say, and as Richard says, we're not the only ones dealing with this. But I would like to sort of slightly turn it on its head and ask what could we be doing differently? So yes, of course, we need to have guards outside our synagogues and our schools, and that's a terrible shame, and it's a, well, it's a terrible shame that we have to do this. But the fact is that 60% of Jewish children are in Jewish schools. And if you move into the, the strictly Orthodox community, that's much higher. And in what we might have in the last bit of the discussion called the secular community, though we're not using that word, it's lower. But on average, it's 60%. Our children then go from Jewish schools where they don't meet anyone else. Many of them go on to what we call universities, right? The sort of 10 or so universities around the country where most of the Jewish kids go. And many of them live in Jewish houses with the kids they knew from their Jewish school and they hang out in the JSOC and they don't meet anyone else. And then they go on and we live in very, very small parts of the UK with uh, about a third of all Jews living in five London boroughs. So, you know, in many ways, we're not helping ourselves because nobody ever meets us. And so we don't meet other people. They don't meet us. The whole sort of past idea about mothers meeting at the school gates and getting to know each other and understanding each other and sharing ideas and sharing conversations and play dates and etc hardly exists anymore interestingly the work i'm doing specifically on jewish and muslim women that would be the same with the men most muslims in this country will never have met a jew you know the only thing they hear about us is what they hear about israel and what they choose to infer from that about jews or what they hear about in the media about Jews. So it's very difficult. We're not helping ourselves. And I think that I understand why people want to go to Jewish schools. I understand the appeal. But if we are going to live like that, I think we've got to work much, much harder to break down the barriers, to get out there, and to meet other people. Because otherwise, they're going to hate us.
Russ Kane, then in that case, do we need to take more of a leaf out of your book because you have recently moved out of the Northwest London bubble, as it mm -hmm. were? Does that mean that we've only got ourselves to blame? No. Laura's raised so many interesting points, and I like your notion of contextualizing it. So let me contextualize this for you. You know, my father and his siblings, all eight of them, grew up in Whitechapel when Whitechapel wasn't trendy, when it was hardcore, right? They fought running battles with the black shirts. My uncle Rafe is still my hero. He passed many years ago when Mosley supporters, those, that lovely family, the Mosleys, when they said, which way to the Mosley meeting? And my uncle, who was built like a boxer, said, this way, mate, and took them both out, clean out. And that's the only way to deal with stuff like that. Uh, thank you, though, of course, we don't encourage that sort of behavior. Oh, I do. I was sent away to boarding school when I was nine and came out again when I was 18. It was a church foundation school. Trust me, I know what it's like to be a minority, to be Mr. Token Jew boy. I, my kids, I didn't want. Everything that you've described, Laura, I didn't want. So my kids eventually went to the same school as I did and have, have flourished. They haven't gone to universities. One's gone to Oxford, one's gone to Bath. And they lead wide and varied lives. Their friends are from every part of the community you can imagine. You're quite right, Phil. I was born and bred in Northwest London. And I thought that was the, the edges of the earth, much like our ancestors thought you'd fall off on when the earth was flat. It's not. I moved to Streatham. My huge regret is I didn't do it a million years ago. Once you leave this, this bubble where we feel comfortable, there's a whole world out there, and everyone's from somewhere else. It feels like being in New York City because everyone's come from somewhere else. That's part one of the answer. I'm sorry it's slightly long. Part two of the answer is that... There is now no demarcation line, it would appear, between being Jewish and hating Israel. And what the liberal elite, and you've already alluded to it, the hardcore left have said, and it's an increasing battle under the Corbynistas, under the open, openly Marxist and Stalinist supporters that he has, all right, is that they, they shroud it in, oh, we don't approve of Israel and these ridiculous bans. What they really mean is we don't approve of Jews. And that's what, that, that's what that's about. And that's why we have to fight it harder and harder every single day. It, it's my personal battle. So when you say, you know, do you feel Jewish? Yes, I'm proud to do so. Doesn't mean I pray because, you know, I'd end up in the same situation as the most religious Jew with his huge beard and huge hat if it all went horribly wrong. It's interesting that you use that description there, that stereotype that we are trying to combat in this very discussion. You refer to a big beard and big hat. Dina Brau, do we just have to accept that anti-Semitism exists and that there is nothing we can do about it? I think it exists. I think it always has existed. We ought to try to do what we can best do in order to protect ourselves. But I think that we have to be really, really careful that we don't let anti-Semitism define us. We have to make sure that we don't end up going back, building walls and ending up in a sort of psychological ghetto. So where we sort of build walls and kind of it's us and them, because that's part of what brings us to polarization. So there is a balance to be had between having strong communities, strong sense of identity, because I think part of the reason there is a rise in sort of anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim feeling, feelings, it, 
post-Brexit, post-Trump, we have had a sense of lack of identity. People don't have a clear sense of their own identity and therefore can only define themselves against other people that they dislike or hate, unfortunately. And so there's this sense of insecurity of turning inwards, which isn't healthy. So I think we need to have strong faith communities that are outward facing. And I hear what Laura says about schools and Jewish schools, and it's an argument used very often against Jewish schools. On the other hand, I remember clearly parents that I, from communities who sent their kids to non-Jewish schools, proudly telling me how many Jewish kids there were in their son's or daughter's class and how they all hung out together, and talking to parents from other ethnic minorities, they also seemed to kind of comment on the fact that even within mixed schools, kids often end up sort of socializing much more and mixing much more with the kids who they can identify as being more like them. I think, according to psychologists, we're like wired to naturally empathize with people who are most like us, whether it's race, ethnicity, religion, gender. And so we need to educate our children and our communities to be empathetic and to develop the empathy towards people who are different to us. And of course, you do that by getting to know them. So I believe very strongly that you get to know them, and that's how you build those bridges. But I think a good faith education turns you to really recognize the godly spark that is in every other human individual and to respect people who are different to you, even though they're different to you, not because we have something in common. It's easy to connect to people who you share something with. It's much harder to connect to people who on the surface are not so much like you. And so that is the work of a religious person, of a truly religious person. It's not just about the external, it's really how you deal with every other human being and how you respect him and how you recognize that there is a spark of godliness in them. So, so that's really what I feel very passionate about. What's interesting is that in Israel itself, there were times of tension in certain high schools because they had different ways of immigrants. So all Jewish kids, but all from very different sort of cultural and, and sort of different countries. And what they found really worked best was to have them work in groups in which they would be interdependent. So the kids would have to work together and they depended on each other's work to succeed themselves. And that was one of the ways that they found that actually they bridged the barriers and there was less sort of like interracial and in sort of tension. The first thing that springs to my mind when I hear all of this discussion is that it does feel as if that there is obviously quite a polarization. We've got part of the panel saying that we need to look at moving further afield and not look so inwardly. And yet at the same time, the thing that crosses my mind is that if we stop looking inwardly, are we being more detrimental, this may be going back slightly to our previous subject, towards the religion as a whole and further risking it's not carrying on in future generations. Richard Ferrer, where's the line crossed? I do find it quite baffling, especially when I, you know, I mean, you look across the channel to the French Jewish community, 400,000 strong, who in the last few years have faced a Muslim community that larger than they are, who are violently opposed to living with a Jew amongst them, now moving to Israel, making Aliyah in, in record numbers. And we have a vibrant, Jewish community that, I mean, who in this room has uh, experienced anything in the last five, ten years that they would consider an affront to their Jewish identity? I mean, 
I'd be surprised if more than two or three people have actually personally experienced anything. I mean, last year was the record number, I think 1,300 incidents in 12 months across the UK. It's not a big number, and that's the record. Yes, there are trigger moments, 2014 Gaza, when the temperature rises and the hot heads hit the streets and the placards come out, you know, due to the gas and, and this stuff that, that sickens you to your, to your bones. But it gets dealt with. You know, the police and the government, they crack down on this. They deal with this as best they can. There's a very special British Jewish culture that's emerged in the last seven or eight years since I've edited the Jewish News. Do you remember when Netanyahu a couple of years ago said, Jews, just come to Israel, Europe's finished for you. And I wrote a piece about how, you know, we've got Mitzvah Day and, and Limud and, and Hanukkah in the Square and Gefilterfest and the JW3. And we've got such a vibrant, unique Jewish-British brand. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm British to my bones. I would never move to Israel. And I think we just need to identify that we are a very, very lucky minority in this country. And I'll go back to my original comment that some people might find surprising. I think a lot of minorities have a lot worse than we do. Thank you very much indeed, panellists. Well, now let's throw it over to our audience to see if there's any comments. And yes, we have a hand raised at the back there. And your name, please. Andy Lucas. You were saying about we are our own worst enemies. And to a certain extent, I think I agree with you. Because Jewish people, especially in northwest London, have this this feeling of, or this appearance of being all very wealthy and all being, they drive the big cars and they drive this, that and the other. And my daughter lives in northwest London. She lives in Mill Hill. And most of the people in her road are possibly, in the main, they are Jewish. And she prefers to deal with her non-Jewish neighbours. She's got a few Jewish neighbours who are absolutely wonderful, but she said some of them are so up their own backsides, if you like, that she doesn't want to talk to them. And she'd far rather be with her non-Jewish neighbours who are amazing to her. We don't help ourselves. We really don't. And I think that that's an old, old idea that Jewish people are all wealthy. Thank you very much indeed for that. We've got another comment in your name, please. My name is Maureen Gorb. As it happens, my children never went to Jewish schools and my grandchildren don't either, but they mix in the Jewish community as well as people from all over the world, as it were, of different faiths. But what I want to put to the panel, or perhaps the audience, is that if you're sending your children to a Jewish school and then to university, how likely is it that they are going to mix and get to know people of other faiths and creeds, etc.? How would they go about it? Well, let's put that to Laura Marks. How would they go about that? Well, some young people are really good at it. You know, once you get to university, then the world is your oyster if you want to take it. You know, there's, there's drama and there's music and there's sport and there's culture and there's politics and there's, you know, everything you could possibly imagine that that is there now or that was always there at university. So I suppose if young people want to engage with it, they can. I think when they're younger, 
they're more dependent on their parents. So that's when, if your child's at a, a Jewish school, then the responsibility as a parent for taking them to maybe non-Jewish scouts or to non-Jewish macrame or whatever you know the thing happens to be that your child likes. There's lots of opportunities out there to do that. And actually what's also nice as a parent going to those sorts of things is there's opportunities for parents to meet too. So I think that it's not impossible. I think it's whether people are motivated and want to do it. And we live in a world of so many possibilities and so many opportunities. It's a matter of just taking them. And if I could add to that, as parents, it's not just about the children. Do we socialize with people who are not immediately in our sort of little circle? You know, do we wish our neighbors, new neighbors who are not particularly, you know, from our shul community, do we go out and reach out? I mean, we have to show it by example. If we are comfortable inviting people and socializing and talking to people of all sort of races, genders, ethnicities, and so on, then that's what our kids are going to pick up. They're going to be confident when they get to other situations, whether it's the after-school clubs or university, stepping outside their comfort zone. I mean, they will be comfortable everywhere and socializing with everyone. Russ Kane, I think that we might predict the answer, but how would you encourage interaction? It's sad that you actually even have to ask the question, quite frankly. The fact that you even have to say, how would you encourage interaction? What kind of life are you leading? I don't mean you personally. What kind of life is one leading if you have to even, even consider that? It's sad and a, an appalling reflection. I saw things much more objectively. I was born and raised in northwest London. That's what I thought the universe was. My other half is Catholic, right, and not practicing either. And when she came to live with me in northwest London, I started to see behavior through her eyes and her comments. And at first, I was furious because I didn't want to accept it. And then I realized, bit by bit, this woman's absolutely right. The arrogance the rudeness, the lack of manners. It was, it was jaw-dropping. And once I saw that, I thought, you know, this isn't for me anymore. And I was embarrassed that I felt like this. I kept having feeling that I had to apologize for other people's behavior. And when I, and when I finally saw it for what it was, we should be proud to be Jewish, always will be. I don't need to be reminded about it. There are enough people out there to do that, I'm sure. I'd love to do it. But we should, of course, we should be fully integrated and it should just be society trying to help each other. You know, you were talking about being religious. My neighbors either side of me are elderly, they've been where they have in Stretton for many, many years. And I go every day and I knock on their door. Can I, I'm going to the shops. Can I get you anything? Now, to me, that's more of a religious thing than sitting there studying words that are, in many cases, irrelevant. You make my point precisely, that, that's what I was trying to say earlier, that being religious is about kindness and good deeds, it's not just about specific ritual. And, and I also want to pick up on this because I think it's fascinating that actually within this room we're talking anti-Semitic language. You know, we're talking about those wealthy Jews, we're talking about those arrogant Jews, and it is fascinating that in this room of Jews we're using language which I'm uncomfortable with generalities about Jews. So yes, of course, there are some wealthy Jews, and yes, of course, there are some arrogant Jews, but I think we need to be very careful not to 
accept that that is the norm, that that is what Jews are like, because that language is what, that is anti-Semitic. That language becomes the norm, that becomes acceptable, that becomes how we talk about Jews, and we're doing it, and we're Jewish. Oh, I but just that's think, okay, isn't it? L- well, Laura, I don't think Laura, it is okay. sit in Fratelli's on Mill Hill Broadway <laughs> in the morning and see how the clientele talk to the staff. See how they treat them. It's embarrassing. Just finally, Richard Ferrer, interaction, just a quick point on that. How would you say that we need to encourage it? I think Laura hit the nail on the head. I think we do self-segregate, don't we? We do self-isolate. You look at the letters page in my paper every week and it's just, this Jew said that, that Jew said that. I'm not like this person. There was the incident of the Cheridim on the on the flight a couple of months ago and the way they behaved on the plane and... The police had to be called. And I mean, that went on for a long, long time. And, you know, the, the old saying of two Jews, three opinions, two Jews, three synagogues. I think there's a, a, lot, of, a lot of merit in that. Thank you very much indeed. That is what we're going to have to leave for this particular topic. Don't forget that if you would like to comment along, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all of those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, on to a man of enormous contention, President Donald Trump. He obviously has been President of the United States for a number of days now, but Mr. Trump has always, at surface value, been very pro-Israel. But of course, Coming from a man who so many question to quite a serious degree, we should really ask ourselves, does he help or hinder the Jewish state? With that in mind, let us start with you, Russ Kane. Do you think that President Donald Trump being pro-Israel is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, anything over the way that Barack Obama treated Israel would be an improvement for a start. Um, You know, um, history will not be kind to Obama because he he looks like a film star, he talks like a film star, he's charismatic. Would I like to meet him and have dinner with him? Absolutely. Is he a good president? He was a shocking president. Donald Trump is so tainted, is so contaminated, is so toxic, is the laughingstock of much of the world that the fact that he likes Israel or doesn't like Israel becomes almost an irrelevance. What is the concern, of course, is there is such an enormous resentment of him and such a backlash against him that one is faced with the problem that if he says, you know, I bigly love Israel, then people will go, well, I loathe Israel, therefore, on principle, because if this idiot likes Israel, it must be the the worst place on the planet. So saying, it was my grandson's bar mitzvah a few weeks ago, and we flew out. I hadn't been to Israel like forever since I was at uni, and I went out and I fell totally in love with the place, and it was just, it was magical and fantastic, and it was eye-opening and, and simply a wonderful, wonderful week out there with amazing people. Israel gets beaten up left, right, and center, and God forbid the election goes the way that it could well go, and you have the hard left in, you know, Israel's going to have even more, even more problems. But to be specific, because he is so toxic and tainted, it's, it, it's an impossible question to answer. 
Well, in that case, Dina Brow, do you want to have a go at answering it? Do you think that President Donald Trump is good or bad for the Jewish state? Well, I'll start with a disclaimer and then I'll make two points. First of all, I don't know enough about geopolitics and I don't think that my rabbinic training qualifies me to have a more informed opinion than anyone else in this room. But I guess what I could do is in good Talmudic fashion answer the question with more questions. And so the first thing we need to kind of figure out is what do we mean by good, right? Do we mean something about achieving peace? Are we talking about not putting Israel under pressure when it legitimately tries to defend itself? Are we talking about not putting Israel under pressure when it's abusing its power? Are we talking about being a good critical friend to Israel? What are we really, how do we define good? And then the other point I would like to make is that I don't particularly like the question asking if X is good for Israel or for Jews for two reasons. I think it goes back to this kind of ghetto mentality it's indicative of Jews thinking just about themselves and their own and not concerned about being about the greater good. It's a very un-Jewish value to really just think about your own and not to think about how anything affects people outside your immediate community, how it affects the majority of people in the world. It also implies that we're putting our trust in one person. And I think it's a bit naive to really think that even somebody as powerful as the President of the United States has the power to make or break it for Israel. You know, there are so many different checks and balances, you know, Congress, Senate, powerful lobbyist groups, the APAC, all of that. American politics are so much more complex than just thinking that President Trump has the power to, to do something that makes such a huge difference is, is slightly naive. And I would say that yesterday's pictures of you know, the greeting that President Trump received in Israel are slightly, <laughs> actually, they're, they're very um, you know, uncomfortable for me. This idea of kind of fawning over one person. And it brought to mind this saying from the Ethics of the Fathers where Rabbi Gamliel, who was the son of Rabbi Judah the Prince, his father was really you know, the political representative of the Jewish people and in times of governors, he says, be careful with the government for they befriend a person only for their own needs. They appear to be friends when it's beneficial to them, but they do not stand by a person at their time of distress. And I think that's something we should keep in mind. The point is, Richard Ferrer, that this one person that we refer to happens to be the leader of the free world. He is the president of the United States of America, arguably the most powerful man on the planet. And is it only a good thing that he is so pro the Jewish state? Someone went to Yad Vashem this afternoon and wrote in the memorial book, it is great to be here amongst all my friends, exclamation mark. So amazing, plus we'll never forget, exclamation mark. Who do you think wrote that? I was speaking to uh, a number of the people that organized the trip from the Israeli end at the back end of last week, and uh, this individual has organized quite a lot of these big state visits. And he said even up to pre-Shabbat, they still didn't know who was coming, when the plane was going to arrive, what the schedule was going to be. There's absolute mayhem in the White House. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows what's going to come out of Trump's mouth next. You've got poor old Sean Spicer who came, who, who was obviously in terrible deep water a few weeks ago when he uh, was talking about, what was it? The, the Holocaust um, centers. Holocaust centers. But here's a man who's trying to second guess what his boss is thinking. And if his boss doesn't even know what he's thinking, quite how Sean Spicer knows what thinking. his boss is thinking is another matter entirely. 
it's interesting. I think Israelis were obviously, you know, they're much maligned. Israel is often criticized. And to get someone like Trump, who's saying, you know, we're, we're going to bash the Iran deal, it's a bad deal, we're going to guarantee 38 billion pounds in defense spending for the Israeli state for the next 10 years. This is good stuff. You know, we, we want to we hear that. Before the election, Trump's approval rating in America, in, in Israel, sorry, was through the roof. It's gone down 23% in the last 100 days, and it's, it's falling further. So I think the Israelis know that they don't want to be tarnished by this man. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the man's a fool, a misogynist, an idiot. Uh, and Israel in your have, opinion, we should uh, add. And Israel should have nothing to do with him. Israel should have nothing to do with him, Laura Marks. Well, I, I think that the question is interesting. Is, pre is President Donald Trump good or bad for Israel? And I think, is President Trump good or bad for anyone? So, you know, is he good for women? Well, we've seen pictures of him sitting around with a room full of men pontificating about abortion, for example. Is he good for Muslims? Well, he's busy banning them from America if he can and, and making them feel massively under threat. Is he good for immigrants or refugees? Or is he, who is he good for? Is he good for big business? So big business was the, his big promise. You know, he was going to come in and he was going to do all this stuff that was going to support big business. Well, as far as I can see, he's too busy clearing up with all his other messes to have had, done anything for them either. So who does think that he's probably good for the gun lobby? I suppose for that he is probably is good. But for any of the things that I care about, he's probably not good for them. And so is he good for Israel? Well, I mean, first of all, as people have already said, you know, he's, he's unpredictable. Uh, we don't know what he'll do. So it, he might say one thing one week and something else the next. But I actually, one of the things I would say with Israel is you're not going to make peace or in the region unless he's good for everybody. So he's going to have to be good for the Palestinians too. You know, he's going to have to be good for all the other factions in the region, or, or at least he's going to have to understand them and work with them and talk to them in some way, because there's no peace in that region if it's only coming from one side, no matter which side it is. So I hope that he is good for all the people of the region, because I, like everyone else here, desperately want there to be a peace. Let's see whether or not the audience wants to answer that question as well, shall we? And your name, please. Elliot Heilpern. Uh, I'd like to take a point of view which is slightly different. It's very easy to criticize, isn't it? Words are cheap. It's easy. The man's been in, what, 100 days? Yes, he is different, isn't he? But you know what? Look at the United States. These people who have governed the United States have seemed to create a dynasty. We've had the Clintons, we've had the Bushes. They're all out of the same box. They haven't done anything special. This man is different. He does things differently. As far as whether he's good for Israel, I really don't know. But you know what? He should be given a chance to do what he says he's going to do. I have no idea whether he is or whether he isn't. But when you look at the predecessors and the actual individuals who have governed the United States in the past, was Ronald Reagan any better? I don't know. I heard as an individual that Reagan, who everyone loves now, who everyone thought was a, a B sort of film star, he used to fall asleep at three o'clock in the afternoon. It was renowned. That was the common thing to be said then. I think the criticism as far as Trump is concerned is completely ridiculous because he has not had any time to really prove himself. 
he hasn't had any chance to do the things he says he's going to do, if he is indeed going to do them. And are you really telling me that the dynasties before them, before him, were any better? Very easy to criticize. Let's just see what will come out of it. Indeed. Well, okay. It's very easy to criticize Richard Ferrer. Should he be given a chance? I mean, I just take a person as I see them. I mean, you look at this man in the eyes and there's really not anyone at home, is there? He's got no acumen. He's got no ability. Hang on, hang on. No, I'm sorry. You know, you have the privilege of sitting up there and saying that. How do you know? What, you've met him, you've spoken to him? I don't know there's no one at home. I find that really insulting. The fact is, whether you like it or not, He's a businessman. He probably thinks politics is done like business, which it isn't, because in business in America, all you have is lawyers. It's not quite the same in politics. Yes, he's a complete novice. He's different. How refreshing. I would love for him to do something and prove you all wrong. I think you're prejudiced, and you come out with these comments. It's quite unfair. Has he, has he got anything upstairs at home? Really? Well, I'm so sorry. Did Obama? Did yes. uh, Clinton? But the fact is, you all criticise. It's so easy, isn't it? He can't write in joined-up writing, and he writes alternative capital letter, lower letters, if you see his handwriting. He uses words like bigly and tremendous quite a lot. In fact, he doesn't really have many words that he can actually speak. His focus, as I said, in intelligence is clearly somebody that isn't somebody that you trust with the nuclear codes. I'd like to be proved wrong, but I don't think his administration is going to last any more months, let alone the four years that it's got. Dina Bra. A Jewish value is not to judge people until you know you find out but I think you can definitely critique the actions and there's been a lot of actions that you know can be fairly criticized Laura gave us a bunch of examples earlier so sometimes we sort of easily then go from actions to person perhaps that's not so fair let's say even just critiquing what he's done so far it doesn't feel that he's going to going good in good places to, to just kind of say it very mildly, to put it very mildly. Ross Kane? I'd like to just redress a couple of things here. I don't want you leaving the shul thinking I'm a fan of the Clintons. I think they're the most appalling people. I think they're ghastly, absolutely ghastly. I was the only one in the BBC studio on the night of the American election who said, Trump's going to win. And all the experts, the big, I was there for light relief. All the experts looked at me like I was on day release, you know, care in the community. And as the night progressed, they were looking at me like I was a, a genius. You know, right. the difference is two, two people that I know well, close friends, who don't know each other, have met him for proper periods of time. I don't mean like being at some huge lunch. And I mean, sitting down with him, just five people having lunch, right? And both of them told me, what their view of him was, it, it wasn't terribly complimentary. I agree with you. The, the shock is he came in and he's doing the things that he said he was going to do. It does what it says on the tin, as they used to say. How it's going to pan out, I couldn't tell you. If he can survive, it may be, it may be very interesting. Laura Marks. Well, I'm not sure there's much more to say, but he... I don't think we necessarily need to wait and see because the things that he said he was going to do and he is doing, I found mostly offensive. 
So I'm not waiting to see if he does something different from what he said he was going to do. I'm waiting to see if he does do the things he was going to do, which are things that I don't want him to do. So on, on women, on immigration, on Muslims, on whatever it happens to be, it's not like he said anything wonderful and I'm waiting for him to deliver it. I'm fearful. I'm very fearful for all of us having him there. I'm fearful not only because of his policies, but I'm also fearful because of his unpredictability. And I think that regardless of what his policies were, you could see a way in which you could maybe play some of those out, though I don't agree with most of them. But what, what I think is so frightening is how he goes backwards and forwards and changes his mind and does things that are unpredictable, which I think is not a good thing for the President of the United States of America. Okay, well, there we go. And that is where we have to leave it for this discussion and indeed for this episode of The Jewish Views Live. I'd like to take this moment to thank all of our panelists. So would you please join me in thanking Dina Brow, Richard Ferrer, Laura Marks, and Russ Kane. Don't forget that you can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will also find the facility to listen again to all previous episodes as well. We must also thank all of the members of the team who are behind the scenes, in particular our producers, Adam Bradley and Tony Honickberg. This episode of The Jewish Views was brought to you in association with the All Things Jewish Committee of EDRS and was recorded at Edgware and District Reform Synagogue. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. Goodbye.